Welcome Truth Seekers all across the Fruited Plain. I'm your host, Kim S. Anderson, bringing you Civics Made Simple. Hashtag we are exceptional. These are bite-sized civics lessons designed for you to take and share wherever you go. These are important times. Times that American citizens like you and me need to know how our rights came to be and the responsibilities that go along with them. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Civics Made Simple. This is your host, Kim S. Anderson. And boy, are we excited to be back with new episodes of this podcast that you guys have supported. And I'm telling you, we're just getting started. And so we are very thrilled to be talking today um, with the full support of Alpha Omega Publishers, whom uh, it is their curriculum that we're following the outline of. Now, you know, during some of this um, episode, I'll be sharing some a few things that I'll be adding myself. How about that? But that's par for the course with what we do. So without any further ado, we're continuing on. And what we're sharing about today is the Bill of Rights. And oh my goodness, what a uniquely American concept, right? Like, I don't know if there's another country that has the Bill of Rights or if the spirit behind their Bill of Rights is like the spirit behind our Bill of Rights. And so let's just dive in to what and why the Bill of Rights, okay? And for those that don't know, and that's okay, that's why we're here. For those of us that don't know, the Bill of Rights are what's commonly referred to as the first 10 amendments to our Constitution. And so the Bill of Rights was put together um not to replace the Constitution, but it was uh, put together and added at the end of the Constitution that was ratified, okay? And so it's important to note that that was done in two steps. The ratification of the Constitution was done first, and then the Bill of Rights was added after. And the reason that that's important to note is because we had, do you remember the lesson that we talked about the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist? Well, the Federalists were in favor of an overarching federal establishment of a central government. And the Anti-Federalists, it's not that they were against that, but they were very protective of states' rights and the individual's rights. And so we had to come up with what they called the Compromise or the Massachusetts Compromise, because they wanted protections for the individual and not just a set of rules for the overarching federal government. And so anti-federalists, no, I'm sorry, the federalists did not want a Bill of Rights because um, they argued that listing the rights of citizens was too dangerous because then government could assume that those were the only rights that a citizen had. But those in support of the Bill of Rights insisted that enumerating a few of the important rights that citizens have would not erase the fact that there were many more. Now, what's important to note, and I'll probably hit this again, is that 
The Bill of Rights does not limit the amount of rights, but the Constitution does and is supposed to limit the government from on a federal level, meaning that the federal government has no more rights than what is put in the Constitution. However, you as an American have rights that include the Bill of Rights, but they are really, in essence, not limited to the Bill of Rights. The federal government is limited by the Constitution. You as an individual are not limited by the Bill of Rights. Got it? That's an important distinction. And that was one of the things that they were arguing about. But we do have to thank, once again, the state of Massachusetts. You've heard me say this more than once because they would not ratify the Constitution without the Federalists agreeing and relenting that there would be a Bill of Rights. Members of the Revolutionary War generation like Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry believed that they had made personal sacrifices to battle the tyranny of the king only to face the prospect of tyranny from an all-powerful Congress. They insisted that the new constitution be immediately amended. And the first Congress, <laughs> as Congress is wont to do, they immediately started taking up other matters such as taxation, etc., etc. Does Congress ever talk about anything else other than taxation? I'm sorry, that's just me. But nevertheless, the, the pressure from the states was really great that they would begin to work on the Bill of Rights. And so the writing and the responsibility of the Bill of Rights fell to James Madison. Ever heard of that guy? Um, yeah, there's now a university named after him. Um, but in his studies, Madison was influenced by the Magna Carta um, from 1215, the English Bill of Rights in 1689, but he drew most heavily on the Virginia Declaration of Rights written by George Mason. And it was decided that a Bill of Rights be added to the Constitution as a series of articles rather than being placed into the body of the Constitution. And the reason that they did this was because they feared that if, if they didn't, they would have to re-ratify the Constitution. And you guys know like how many more years might that have taken? And so initially, I thought an interesting fact was that there were 12 amendments proposed to that first Congress for the Bill of Rights. The first two did not pass. And what we now know as the Bill of Rights passed easily. And they were passed by the House on September 25th, 1789. Um, and on November 20th, 1789, New Jersey became the first state to approve the amendments that were now labeled as Article 1 through Article 10. And by December 15, 1891, all 13 states had approved the amendments and they became known as the Bill of Rights. Now, interestingly, you'll see why the first two were not included. The first one that was called Article the First attempted to regulate the method of determining the size of the House of Representatives based on population of the United States. Okay. And that was voted down. And Article the Second dealt with compensation for senators and representatives. 
Yeah, this was ultimately passed as Article 27 in 1992. Those senators and representatives want to make sure that they are compensated. Do they not? Okay, but you can see why these two did not pass because they didn't have anything to do with individual rights. They were just something that, you know, Congress was discussing, but it didn't have anything to do with individual protections that the Bill of Rights were going to set up and establish. Okay, and so let's very quickly, looking at our time and debating whether I'm going to keep going or split this up into two, but let's keep going and see if I can bring this all together. And so let's go through the amendments, the Bill of Rights, very quickly, but yet succinctly. So Amendment 1, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the, ex the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now there are five personal freedoms listed in the First Amendment. Uh, it's hardly a coincidence that the freedoms that are listed were the freedom of religion and freedom of speech. This was a direct response to the religious persecution that many of the early colonists had experienced under English rule. The founding fathers knew, and they were very wise, that the choice of one's personal religion required public expression. So they wrote these freedoms into the Constitution that future generations could enjoy what so many of them had sacrificed to obtain. Like the Great Compromise, which offered protection to the small states, this amendment is intended to remind the majority that the public expression of religious views is a right available to all citizens. The Founding Fathers knew any wall of separation between church and state, check this out, any wall between church and state was intended to protect congregations from government regulation, not the other way around. So you will hear that a lot. Oh, we have to have separation of church and state. Well, we need to keep the, the state out of the church, but we don't necessarily need to keep the church out of the state. Just take that one and do with it what you will. The second freedom is the freedom of speech. Colonists had too many experiences of their English governors and leaders attempting to silence their voices of protest. Every citizen has a right to speak his mind, his or her mind, without fear of reprisal. This amended pro amendment protects citizens from being penalized for voicing an opinion, even if it is one that is contrary to the popular view. Just, I'm just going to leave that there. Freedom of assembly was a, a important for these early patriots. Their legislators had, dis, had been disbanded by royal governors and they had been forbidden to assemble together. These and other hardships had been experienced under, under English rule and they were determined to protect, protect blah, 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 and they were determined to protect these rights under the new government. This amendment also contains two other guarantees, the freedom of the press and the freedom to petition the government to remedy injustices. 
Without these freedoms, there would be no way that the voice of the people could be heard. Moving on to the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It's really kind of straightforward there. I don't know what else we should add or take away. There you go. Now, it shall not be infringed. How about that? That's what it says. Amendment 3. No soldier in time shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a time but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the series called Turn that was on AMC. Like when I was younger and I would read this, it didn't really make sense to me. I didn't understand why they needed to have it. But literally redcoats would just take up residence in people's houses, whether it was war or not, because they just demanded to be there. And there was no privacy. There was no security. They had no recourse for the host soldiers to just come and 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 a ranking officers would just come and say, I want to stay in this house. And it didn't matter what the owner of the house said or the owner of the land wanted to do. If the if the redcoats and the officers wanted to be there, they were kicking them out and they were going to serve them. And so it's it's such an intrusion. And when I watched that series, I was amazed. You know, you could feel it like, how dare they <laughs> from an American perspective? But it was a it was a really a serious thing. So this amendment refers directly to the Quartering Act of 1774 by stating that the law must be followed even during time of war. The founding fathers were emphasizing the importance of the rule of law and the privacy of their personal property was ensured by the adoption of this amendment. Now, I'm going to move quickly through the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th amendments because they provide important guarantees for persons accused of a crime. So, I'm going to read them and then do just a really brief synopsis. I think I'm doing good on time. We're making this happen. The 4th Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizure seizures I can talk I'm doing really great today shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized now we see this this act out all the time in like TV shows and cop shows where p police officers cannot just come into your house without probable cause. They have to get a judge to sign off on a warrant. And so once again, this was directly related to the invasion of personal property and seizure by the English and those unreasonable searches and seizures would often lead to unwarranted and unlawful and longer terms of imprisonment than it would be, than it than was necessary. The Fifth Amendment, we know about this one too, don't we, from TV shows. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime 
unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, accepting cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall he, nor shall he, nor shall they be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor he deprived, I'm sorry, I need my glasses on, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Okay, did you get all that despite my stuttering? I'm putting on my glasses right now so I can, it's like in small print in this little book I'm reading. Okay. And so, the Fifth Amendment requires a grand jury to determine if there is a legitimate criminal case against someone. Military courts are the exception. A person who's acquitted of a crime cannot be retried on the same charge. We know that as double jeopardy. Nor can a person be forced to testify against himself. This amendment also restricts the right of the government to take private property without payment. You can see how that was a big deal for the founding fathers and we now know this as eminent domain so the important element again is that due process of law must be followed to bring charges against any individual the sixth amendment in all criminal prosecutions the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed which districts shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So the Sixth Amendment requires a speedy and public trial. This amendment provides the right to see and hear an, hear an accuser, and it specifies that a witness who may be able to show a person's innocence can be compelled to testify. In addition, it declares the right of an individual to a trial by jury and it establishes their residency requirements as being that locality in which the crime was committed. This amendment also creates the obligation of the government in providing legal advice to any accused who cannot afford a lawyer. The Seventh Amendment, we're moving right along. The Seventh Amendment, in suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. That's a mouthful. So the Seventh Amendment guarantees a trial by jury for civil cases in which the dollar amount is greater than $20. This assured the accused of a fair trial before a jury of his peers <laughs> and the possibility of a ruling by a corrupt or uninformed judge was eliminated. Isn't that cute? The Eighth Amendment. Here we go. We're getting there. We're almost done. The enumeration in the Const oops, wrong one. Eighth Amendment. Excessive bail 
shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. The Eighth Amendment specifies that there should be no unreasonable bail. Now, bail for you guys, you know, is the money that a person gives a court as a promise that they will appear for trial. If a person does not come to court as promised, he forfeits the bail money. This amendment also prohibits government from imposing excessive punishments. Under English rule, citizens had often been thrown in jail or imprisoned for relatively minor offenses and were not released until unreasonable fines had been paid. And the Ninth Amendment, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The Ninth Amendment speaks to rights not mentioned in the Constitution. It seeks to put limits on the use of an interpretation by the government that these rights are the only ones that are protected. It clearly states that the power and role of government is to be restricted. And the Bill of Rights is, should not be assumed to be a complete listing of rights retained by the people. The Tenth Amendment. We are getting there. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution. Oh, I think I, I think I read them backwards. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. I'm sorry. I read the 10th for the 9th. The 9th states, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. I'm sorry, I mixed that up. So the 10th Amendment complements the 9th by saying that unless a power is specifically delegated to the central government, nor prohibited by the Constitution to the states, it is reserved for the states or the people. The intent of these two amendments can clearly be seen with the words, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states are considered. Together, these amendments say that the central government has only those delegated powers that are actually described in the Constitution. And the, so there you have it. My apologies for mixing up those last two. And we will be moving forward, coming up with um, our next lessons. Hang on one second. And we will start to talk about the executive branch, presidential power, electing a president, the federal bureaucracy. For those of you that are listening in 2021, you know why I'm laughing. Um, and then we'll move to the legislative branch and then we'll move to the judicial branch. But we've got some exciting episodes coming up. So, so grateful, so thankful that you have taken some time to be with us here on Civics Made Simple. This is Kim S. Anderson, your host, over and out, and we will talk to you soon. God bless. Bye-bye, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Civics Made Simple. This is your host, Kim S. Anderson, inviting you to visit our site, kimsanderson.me.me. For the latest and most up-to-date information on our podcast and our store, follow us at hashtag WeAreExceptional on Instagram and Twitter. God bless, and we'll see you next time.